Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 19 this morning, if you want to flip over there. And we'll be looking at the first seven verses. This passage that we're in this morning, uh, at first glance, looks pretty straightforward. Not a lot going on in this. It's just the account of Paul and 12, 12, around 12 guys that he comes in contact with. But it's a passage that over the years people have drawn some theological, theological conclusions about the Holy Spirit, who he is, and what he does. And so uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning kind of diving into that. If we're being honest, uh, the concept of the Holy Spirit sounds kind of funny in some ways. If, if you, like a person that's not familiar with Christianity, hears about what we believe about the Holy Spirit, you can kind of say and picture them saying, you believe what? And, and I'm glad you asked. Uh, this is what we believe about the Holy Spirit. This is what the Bible says or reveals to us about the Holy Spirit. He is God. And as such, he is holy. He's the third member of the Trinity, which makes him co-equal with God the Father and God the Son. He possesses the same character and attributes as the Father and the Son. So when it comes to knowing everything, uh, seeing everything, all-powerful, all those things, they share those, those character and attributes, but the Holy Spirit's role is different than theirs. Thank you. He is not an impersonal force. He is personal with a mind, emotion, and will. The, the Bible compares him to the wind that blows wherever it wants to blow. We can't see the Holy Spirit, but we can see the power of his effect, just like the wind. And then here's the crazy part. He indwells those who place their faith in Christ for salvation. And this is crazy to think about. But Jesus talked about it. In John chapter 7, Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So this is hugely significant because ever since the fall of man, when sin entered the world, everything got broken. And man has been separated from intimacy with God. And this changes that. Through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, when we place our faith in that, we no longer have to be separated from intimacy with God. We can enjoy that. God now makes his dwelling within us through the person of the Holy Spirit. We get to enjoy intimacy with God on a daily basis. Kind of like when, you, you know, when I read about Adam and Eve in the garden, and I see how God would come and spend time with him in the cool of the day, and I think, oh, that would be so neat. But then I have to stop and remind myself, no, he does that with me every day through the, through the Holy Spirit. But this is only possible because of the work of Christ on the cross. What he did on the cross was he, he cleansed us in a way that makes it possible for the Holy Spirit to live within us. If we were unholy, he couldn't dwell within us. But Christ has made us righteous through his work on the cross. And a beautiful picture of this you know, what took place, we saw it when Jesus died on the cross. Do you remember what happened to the veil? That was, there was this thick veil that separated man from God in the temple. And you remember what happened to that thing when Jesus died on the cross? Yeah, the thing got ripped in two. And it's a picture of what happened. Now we, we get to enjoy intimacy with God, and he gets to enjoy a relationship with us in a way that wasn't possible before the cross. So that's what Jesus has done for us so that God can, can make his dwelling among us. And we're even called now the temple of the living God, which if you think about all the stuff you've read about the temple, and then you think that I'm called that, it's like, that doesn't make sense, right? But that's what it says in 2 Corinthians 6, 16. For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
But wait, there's more. Not only does the Holy Spirit make us home with us, but he also seals us so that our salvation cannot be undone. Boy, I like this one. If you're anything like me, to hear that I can't do anything to, to mess this thing up is really, really good news. Ephesians 1.13 says this, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That's just really great news. The Holy Spirit seals us. Throughout the Bible, the seal communicates ownership, a guarantee of security, and protection. And he does all of that for us. So that is an extremely brief overview of, of who the Holy Spirit is and some of what he does, but it'll hopefully help us kind of better navigate the passage we're in this morning. So we're going to pick things up in verse 1 of chapter 19 of Acts. Paul has begun his third missionary journey, and he's just arrived back at Ephesus. This is what we read. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, depending on your understanding of this passage, you can come up with some different ideas, like I said, about who the Holy Spirit is, uh, when he comes to believers, and what happens, how he impacts their life when he does. A lot of the, the difficulty comes from the, the word disciples that we see in this passage in verse 2. Normally, disciples refers to Christians. When we read it in the New Testament, very often it's just talking about Christians. It's kind of synonymous with that, but not always. In this context, Luke could have simply meant they were disciples of John the Baptist because, you know, they kind of identify with that. And, and a, that just means that they were a learner or a student. So we're going to consider two possibilities this morning. Uh, scholars, if you read, if you study this passage, you'll find that they're split in two different camps. And so I'm going to present both of them, and, and we can kind of discuss the implications of each. So the first possibility is that Paul encountered a group of non-Christians who had not yet heard and understood the gospel unto salvation. So around 12 non-Christians. Second possibility is Paul encountered a group of Christians who had been believers for a period of time, but had not yet received the Holy Spirit. All right, here we go. Possibility number one is that these guys are non-Christians. So Paul gets to Ephesus. He finds uh, some people he, he identifies as disciples. We're not told why or how. And he starts making inquiries to find out more about them, which is something we need to take note of. It isn't enough for us to assume someone is a Christian. The truth is, a lot of people will say they're a Christian. And if you're like me, I like that. If I say, hey, are you a Christian? And they say, yes, I'm like, yes, because I want to hear that. That's exactly what I want them to say. It makes me really happy. The problem is, it's not always accurate. It's not always real. And it's worth investigating a bit because, quite frankly, it has eternal consequences. So Paul, like a good apostle, does some digging. He asked the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And that's a great question to ask. Asking specific questions can give you a greater understanding of what's going on. I used to fix copiers for a living. 
And so when you'd walk into the office, you would say, hey, what's going on? They'd say, the copier's broke. I think it needs rollers. They always said it needed rollers. I don't know why. Didn't matter what was going on. There's black streaks. Need some rollers. It was jamming. It needed rollers. So I would have to ask some diagnostic questions to try to figure out what in the world was going on. So you'd ask things like, you know, does it jam all the time? And they would hold up a piece of cardboard and say, no, only when we try to feed this. And it's like, well, don't do that. Or, or they hear a noise. Is, does it do it all the time or, or when it's just sitting there doing nothing? Oh, no, in the morning we come in, we're, it's not even working and it's making the noise. Well, it's a fan. I can figure those things out by just asking questions. That, that's what we need to do in, in regards to this, too. In the same way, the way people answer questions about their faith will tell us a lot. So two diagnostic questions that Evangelism Explosion say that we should ask people are this. Do you know for sure that when you die, you will be with God in heaven? And this one as well. If God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Those are good questions. They will tell you a whole lot about where that person stands with the Lord. How would you answer those questions? I'll tell you how I would answer them. Yes, I know for sure that one day I will stand with God in heaven. And the reason for it, the reason why, when he says, why should I let you into my heaven? This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to point to Jesus because I have nothing else to point to. I love the old song, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I'm naked, I come to him for dress. I'm helpless, I look to him for grace, I'm foul. So I have to fly to the fountain and say, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's all I got. If, if you answer anything but Jesus alone is my righteousness, you're in trouble. So Paul asked these guys a really good question as well. How would you answer this question? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? A person should know if they've received the Holy Spirit. If I were to come up to you and say, do you have a spouse? I would, I would expect you not to go, hmm, let me think about that for a while and I'll get back to you. That would be pretty weird. And I think it's weirder to not know if you've, if you've received the Holy Spirit. Listen to how the disciples answered Paul's question as to whether or not they'd received the Holy Spirit. They said this, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Well, that's a big red flag, okay? And it's also a really strange response because in a minute they're going to say they were John the Baptist's disciples. And I could just picture John the Baptist, I mean, he's dead now, but going, guys, we covered this, you know? I mean, I'm just thinking from a teacher standpoint, this would be frustrating. It's like, remember that one comes after me who will baptize you in the whole, with the Holy Spirit and fire, like any of that ringing a bell, guys? But nothing. We can assume a couple of options here because 20 years has passed since John the Baptist's ministry was going on. So if they're his disciples, maybe that just didn't get passed down to him. Maybe they were truly ignorant, not, not dumb, but uninformed, and they hadn't heard it. Maybe they were poor students. Um, this happens a lot. I don't know if you're like me. I used to be able to sit in a class and, and listen to the teacher talk for an hour and walk out and not retain any of it. I can do the same thing when I'm reading a book. I'll get three pages in and be like, I don't even know what I just read because I'm just, pfft. maybe it's something like that. The truth is, honestly, I'm always surprised that people will preach the same things every week in regards to who Jesus is and what he's done. We always try to preach the gospel every time we get up here. And I'll be surprised at times when somebody will come up after three or four years of hearing this and say, I heard something today for the first time. Do you mean to tell me that Jesus Christ took my place on the cross 
took my sins and gave me his righteousness. And if I place my faith in that, I can believe and be forgiven and have life. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, this isn't the first time we've said it. But it might be the first time they've heard it because these things are spiritually discerned. And, and you never know when God is going to wake somebody up to the truth of that. So it may be something like that. Or it may simply just been, have been that the way they said it is like, oh, we, we, we hadn't heard that had gone down yet. You know, it's hard to imagine people that were disciples the believers and even, you know, what the Bible teaches, not, not knowing that there was a Holy Spirit. So maybe it's just like we didn't know that it happened yet. At any rate, um, this is what John says to them, or what Paul says to them afterwards. He, he, he does more digging. So in verse 3, he says, into what then were you baptized? Another great question. And they say, into John's baptism. And so now you can almost hear Paul go, the light comes on. Ah, okay. Now I see what happened here. I see where the disconnect is. Now we're getting somewhere because Paul knows that they hadn't moved beyond John the Baptist's ministry towards who Jesus was. So he explains to them in verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. So Paul like directs traffic. Okay, you were here. This is where you need to get to over here. John's ministry involved a baptism of repentance. Repentance, just so you guys know what it is, it's when it's a change of mind that results in a change of action or a change of heart that results in a change of action. So if you're walking this way and you know this isn't working, to turn and do a 180, not a 360. I hear people say that all the time. 360 just gets you going back in the same direction. A 180, you, you've now turned and now you're going somewhere else. That's what he's telling them. John's baptism meant people realized they needed to turn from what they were doing towards something else. Now, Paul's just connecting the dots to who they need to turn to. John's baptism wasn't meant to, it didn't save anybody, but it pointed them to the one who could save them. So taking part in John's baptism just meant that you understood you needed to change something and you needed a savior. And many people know that their lives need to change. I run into people all the time, they know that part, but they don't ever connect the dots to Jesus unless they hear the gospel. That's why we need to preach the gospel. That's the message that saves people. So these guys, somehow they knew they needed to get right with God. Uh, they may have even knew, known that the answer was provided by God and the Messiah. They just didn't know who it was yet or how it had happened yet. They need to go all the way in, trust Jesus, who he is, what he's done, fall on their faces before him and throw up the white flag. And maybe some of you are in that same spot. You know a change is in order, but you've never fallen on your knees and surrendered fully to Jesus Christ. And today's the day you can because he's the only one that can change your predicament. Well, the minute Paul explains this to them, that Jesus is the answer they were looking for, we read this in verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they'd been baptized in John, John's ministry. Now they're baptized into Christ. That's a picture of salvation. You know, we, 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 uh, a lot of people become Christians. They don't get baptized. If you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, be baptized. That's what you're supposed to do. These things are linked together. The water doesn't save you. It's just an absolute linked picture of what does. We go down into death. We're cleansed. We're raised to new life in Christ. Get baptized if you haven't been. We would, we, we're overdue for a baptism. We've got to figure out a way to do it soon, but if that's something that God's put on your heart, talk to us. We want to get you baptized. All right, that was all. A side note. Back to the text. Verse 6 says, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So if Paul were to ask them the same question now, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, what do you think they'd say? Heck, yes, we have. They might not have said heck because that's like almost a swear word. Absolutely, yes, we have. Cece gasped audibly. <gasps> Sorry, it just came out. Yes, all uncertainty they had before is gone now. 
They know. They know now. Now, not everyone will speak in tongues and prophesy when they become a Christian. I've been a Christian for, I don't want to do the math, but 1986. Never spoken in tongues. I don't think I've ever prophesied apart from just preaching God's word. Um, doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. If God ever lets me do that, cool. Haven't done it yet. Don't know if I ever will. That's not a requirement. But every Christian will experience signs of life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what are some of these signs of life? Well, side effects can include love, joy, peace, new desires, a love for God's people, and a desire to share his love with others. Now, some people receiving new life experience tongue loosening and prophetic speech. It may work out that way. It may not. But all of this is something that was predicted would happen back in like hundreds of years ago in Ezekiel. God told his people, I'm going to do something really unique. This is what it's going to look like. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So you see that even obedience is a sign of life. I can tell you without any uncertainty that before I became a Christian, I had no desire to walk in obedience at all. I didn't care to please my Heavenly Father. I didn't care to offer myself as a worship acceptable in His sight. You know, any of that. I was just doing my own thing. And when I became a Christian, all of a sudden these new desires happened. And I wanted to do things that pleased my Father. Okay, so that's possibility number one. These guys were primed and ready, but not believers yet. We like to call those people pre-Christians. It's optimistic. Uh, but once they heard the rest of the story, they believed in Jesus and were baptized. So they were disciples of John the Baptist when Paul got there that day. They were disciples of Jesus Christ when Paul left there that day. It's a good day for these tw about 12 guys. Right? Now we're going to consider another possibility. Kind of like, do you remember when movies had alternate endings? If you watched a movie and the ending stunk, you could like check out an alternate ending and, and see if you like that one better. Well, that's what we're going to do now, so that sounds weird, but get that other scenario out of your mind for a second. We're going to consider this one. Possibility two, Christians who had not yet received the Holy Spirit. So Paul strolls into town, comes across a group of 12 Christian guys, walks up to them, sizes them up, and says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? First off, that's funny to me. I don't know what would prompt Paul to do this. I don't know if he looked over at them and they were all wearing like, you know, door t-shirts that said sinners only, and he was like, hmm, I don't know. If they, if they looked rough, commentators say that there must have been something in their looks or behavior that made Paul question, you know, whether or not they'd received the Spirit. And that's just funny to me. I'm not sure how I'd feel about somebody walking up to me and kind of, you know, looking me up and down. You're going, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, Brent? Yeah, I didn't think so. I mean, that's what it sounds like. It's like, what, what would that even mean? Well, some of you might be familiar with the teaching that Christians have access to a second blessing, also referred to as baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is one of the main passages that you'll go to to arrive at that conclusion. This idea, and I'm going to present this, and I want you to hang in there with me, because I know a lot of people have been taught this, so I'm going to present it, wait for it, don't get upset if you, if you hear me saying something that doesn't agree with where you're at. So, um, the idea of a second blessing is this, that it occurs after our normal conversion, and it propels us into a better state of Christianity, one where we're kind of on fire for God, no pun intended, but that's kind of what we would say. Extreme versions of this belief teach that we can even achieve a, a perfected life of sinlessness because of it. 
So this would mean that there are two kinds of Christians. There are spirit-filled Christians and regular Christians, or kind of a first-class, second-class. Literally, the haves and the have-nots is what, what this would mean. Is this passage teaching that? And I don't believe that it is, especially in light of other scriptures like Romans 8 9 that says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Or like the passage I just read earlier in Ephesians 1 that says that the Holy Spirit, when we believe, he's the seal that guarantees our inheritance. It comes at the moment we believe to seal us. God said he would never leave us or forsake us, and that's the guarantee of it. So it's not like he's going to give us this gift or then re-gift it or have to give it again or, or whatever uh, we look at it. So, and I believe it's really harmful to create kind of an us and them distinction in the church. It causes pride. It causes superiority. It causes jealousy, and it can cause division. None of, none of that's supposed to exist within the family of God. And it's based on this idea that I'm spirit-filled, and you all are just basic. I mean, that's just kind of a weird way to put it, but that's what, that's what it indicates. I, I went to... Uh, this is the other the danger of it is that you can start to almost pretend because you don't want to be one of the have-nots. And I've seen this a lot. So I better, you know, there's these spirit-filled Christians over here. I'm just a regular Christian. So I, I'm going to kind of do it up a little bit to make sure that, you know, I'm not found out because I don't want it to be just basic. I remember going to a church with a family in Seattle one time. I stayed with them for a few days before we went to church. And I would call them regular Christians at best. <laughs> There was nothing about these guys that made me think, wow, this is really a spirit-filled group of people. They talked mean to each other. They were, you know, there were times when I even kind of wondered, are they Christians? It was kind of an odd weekend. And then we went to church. And as we pulled into the parking lot, you wouldn't believe what happened. All of a sudden, they were like spirit-filled Christians. And they, they remained that way until about the time we left church that day and got back in the car to go home. And then it all went away again. And I remember scratching my head and thinking, what did I just see? And I'm not saying that there are times when God's spirit manifests itself in our lives in a way that is undeniable. But this sure did look manufactured. I'm a little skeptical. I get that. But it didn't look real. It looked like they were doing what they had to do to put on a show, to be what they thought other people wanted them to be. And what I love about Christianity is we don't have to do that. We can have a time where we come in here and we can be honest. And we saw some of that this morning. And I, I don't, I don't want to stay down. I don't want to stay in my sin. I don't want, I want to continue to pursue Christ, but it's okay to be right where I'm at right now and not have to fake it. I wish more Christians didn't fake it. We were just honest. Hopefully we create an environment where you don't feel like you have to fake it. So that is, is kind of possibility number two. There is a variation to possi possibility number two that I think does work, but it's a little mind-bendy. So if you're like sci-fi nerds, this is kind of like a red pill, blue pill thing. Get ready. It's not that weird, but we need to keep in mind that this is a unique time in history that bridged the gap between the Old Testament era and the New Testament era. Okay? So people have always been saved by faith in Christ. I want to make sure everybody understands this. We look back to it. They looked forward to it. So if this is the cross, and I live over here in the future, or like in now, I look back to Jesus Trust in him for, for belief. Abraham over here, he looked forward to it and believed. Our faith was credited to us as righteousness. Always been by faith. Okay, the difference is the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit was not available until after Jesus ascended. Remember how Jesus would say that, you know, one's coming after me? 
John 7.38, it says it this way. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Once he was glorified, then it could come. So these guys might have been part of this transitional group that existed between the Old Testament era and the New Testament era. And, and Pentecost just hadn't quite caught up with them yet. That's a weird way to say it. But if you remember Pentecost, that's the day when the, the, the disciples sat in the upper room and all this happened. Well, now, like one commentator described it as kind of like a ripple effect that started to go out from, from Jerusalem. So the Jews first, and then we saw it happen to the Samaritans, right, in Acts chapter 8. And then we see it happen to Gentiles, Cornelius in Acts, I think, 11, 10. I looked, it's 10. And then you see it go out further to the farthest reaches now where, where you're seeing the same thing happen. And the cool thing is that the way that it went down in Jerusalem and Samaria and Cornelius' home and here is very much the same. So if you were talking about inclusion as a bona fide Christian in the church, this, this kind of does it. Like same thing happened to the Samaritans that happened to us. They can't be different. Same thing happened to the Gentiles. Same thing, you know, full inclusion into the church. So that's kind of the way I, I, I think this might be going down. It's also interesting to point out a couple of other things. This is probably why they spoke in tongues and prophesied. That happened in those other instances too, same thing. Also interesting to point out, it always happened to a group and not an individual in each of these scenarios. We, we tend to make it an individual thing. It was a group and there was an apostle present every time. So food for thought, there you go. If the variation on, on position two that I just described is correct, it's meant to be descriptive and not prescriptive. And what I mean by that is, it's telling us what happened, not what to expect for ourselves. There are times when you read the Bible and it's just describing something. It's not telling us it's going to be this way. I think this is descriptive. So that's all kind of technical. Now I'm going to get a little bit practical because the truth is this. Even though the teaching of a second blessing may not be theologically correct, it certainly is spiritually understandable. I don't know if you're like me, but I want more of God. I want to experience his spirit on a daily basis. And I see why people yearn for something like this. I get it. And so when you discuss this topic, usually this question arises. What about people who have had an experience that seems to agree with an idea of a second blessing or whatever you want to call it? Um, there are a lot of people you'll talk to. They'll just say something. At one point in time, something changed. And I don't know how to explain it, but it was awesome. It may have been for a time or it may have been for you know forever. But, but how do we explain this biblically? And I want to just kind of quickly give you this thought. I believe that when we believe, when we are born again, born of the Spirit, as it says in John chapter 3, we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, sealed. He's there permanently. But we aren't always filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and I think the, the Bible would describe it as filled. So my stupid picture is like I'm a glass of water filled up with, you know, this is Brent in the glass of water. And then you pour the Holy Spirit in, and what happens to Brent? Brent gets displaced and the Holy Spirit becomes present. Now, it doesn't work very well because Brent's on the floor and can't get back into the glass, and I know you're trying to figure all that out. So another thought was a balloon where you have a little bit of, there's, you know, there's me in the balloon, and then filled with the Holy Spirit, and then, then it's just Brent again, and then filled, so I don't go away completely. However you want to look at that, you know, good luck with it, but that's, there's probably a much better way to describe that. But somehow we get displaced, and he shows up. And I can't help but think of what John the Baptist said. You know, he must increase, I must decrease. And that's what we want to see. So that's how I would kind of describe those two things. But 
But biblically, how do we explain this? What I've noticed over the years is that there are times when the presence of the Holy Spirit is just more evident in my life than at other times. One of those times is empowerment for ministry. I am an introvert. I do not like public. I don't take this the wrong way, but I don't like people a whole lot. I love people, but I like the thought of going to a place where there's a lot of people. I'd rather like lose a finger almost. You know, it's just like, I don't want to do that. And here I've been called to like come and stand before people and speak. I don't want to do that. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit empowers me. And I'm not saying I'm a spirit-filled preacher. I wish that that was how people describe me. I don't usually get that. But I know it's something the Holy Spirit empowers me to do. Maybe there's been times when you were called, you had to go talk to somebody about the Lord and you were nervous and then you start talking and all of a sudden it's almost like power is coming out of your fingertips. It's like, what is that? Words are coming out that you're not even aware. Scripture's coming out and you don't even have a good memory. That can be the Holy Spirit doing something crazy. Just like Paul said, or just like they said in, in Acts, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So there's that. There's also just these times where we experience a season of closeness. It can last for quite a while. It can last for a minute. But you just know. Sometimes it could just be like you're singing a worship song. And all of a sudden, something just happens. You know, I had a, a buddy of mine was talking about how he had a horrible night. He was in pain all night. He didn't sleep. He went out on the porch that morning and started to pray. Sun was shining on him. He said, all of a sudden, I just felt almost what felt like God, just like a blanket came around me and filled me with his presence and his peace. And I thought, that's, that's the Holy Spirit. And so we do get these things. The other thing it could be, and this sounds kind of crazy, but it could just be actual conversion. When we experience this thing that we think of as a second blessing, it could be a first blessing in disguise. And the reason I say that is because it happened to John Wesley. If you know anything about the Wesleys lived back in the 1700s, uh, Charles and John, they wrote a lot of hymns we like to sing. They were raised in a Christian home. Their dad was a pastor. And, and John became a pastor himself. And, uh, and he went along for quite a while. It's something like 15 years. And then this thing happened. He wrote about it in his diary. On May 24th, 19, or 1719, 1738, this goes back a while. This is what he wrote. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. He says that's the moment he got saved. I don't know. God knows. I don't know how this works because he stands outside of time and he knows all this stuff. But at some point, something should change. You should, you know, I, when I became a Christian, I remember the de definite difference that the Holy Spirit made in my life. And I know my conversion is probably different than other people. Some people are raised in a Christian home, and there's never that distinguishing point. It just kind of happens over kind of a slow boil. Mine was immediate. Like the night I became a Christian, I remember being on my knees. I was shaking like a leaf. The room was warm. I prayed. I finally just surrendered fully, not a little, fully. My life is yours, Lord. And I gave my, my, myself 100% to him. And I stood up, and there was a mirror across from me. And I saw my reflection in the mirror, and I was a new creation. I knew it. It was like, it was so obvious. And everybody around me saw it too, because I was a jerk. I was a big jerk. And my mom, and I was doing all kinds of things I shouldn't have been doing. And, and, you know, I was still, I was 19 and living at home. Don't judge me. In my mom and dad's basement. And I'm not even a millennial. I'm a Gen Xer. Anyway, you know, night after night after night for years, I've been coming home. Not in my right mind. I'll just say it that way. My parents never said anything. That night I come home. 
they looked at me and they said, have you been doing drugs? <laughs> and I thought, well, that's just weird. But they saw something different in me. Immediately, my life changed. All of a sudden, I was aware of God's presence all the time. And sometimes it was great. Sometimes it was super convicting. It was a little bit of everything. Sometimes I was guided. Sometimes I was empowered. Sometimes I was convicted. Sometimes I was comforted. Everything changed, but I always knew he was there. And the sad thing is, and I hate to admit it, but that can grow mundane over the years. How is that, how is that possible? You, know, you hear about losing your first love. And I think, how can God dwelling within me become like, eh, how is that possible? And so, you know, this idea that, that we want to be filled, I get. In fact, this is what Ephesians 5.18 says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. This idea of drink that up, get drunk in that way. And I know that sounds weird, but... This is what that, that verse really says. The present tense verb means be continually being filled with the Spirit. That sounds weird, but be continually being filled. So it's not a one and done as much as I wish it were. I wish I could have like a one thing happen to me and be filled with the Spirit in that way all the time. Indwelling is one and done. Being filled to me is a continual quest. And I like the way D.A. Carson speaks on this passage. I don't know if you're familiar with this guy. He's really smart. And so I'm going to dumb this down a little bit for, more for my sake than yours, but we call it dooring it down. Don't take it personally. Uh, we went and saw him speak, by the way, and he would say something, and then he would say in other words, and he would say it again, and then he would say in other words, and he'd say it again. And by about the fourth time he said in other words, I'm like, oh, I understand what you're saying now. So, but this is what he says, and it's in his book called Showing the Spirit, page 160, if you want to read what he writes. He says, although I find no biblical support for a second blessing theology, I do find support for a second, third, fourth, or fifth blessing theology. And although I find no biblical support for a second baptism of the Spirit, I do find that there are degrees of unction, blessing, service, holy joy, along with some more currently celebrated gifts associated with those whose hearts have been specially touched by the sovereign God. And then I really like this one. Although I think it extremely dangerous to pursue a second blessing attested by tongues, I think it no less dangerous not to pant after God at all and to be satisfied with a merely creedal Christianity that is kosher but complacent, orthodox but ossified, sound but soundly asleep. And that just convicts me to think about that. How can we fall asleep? How can we get bored by the presence of God? Some of us have settled for a ho-hum relationship with God, and that's sad. So pray to be filled. Pray to be on fire. Pray to be used of God. Pray that his presence is new every morning in some way. Who doesn't want more of God's spirit? Who doesn't want to experience the blessing and the power of his presence on a daily basis? We need to ask for it, I believe. Now, Father, I, I do want to just ask for your blessing upon this group of people here today. I thank you that we got to gather. We got to be here when the world is going crazy right now, Lord, we get to come in here and hear about your goodness. To think, Lord, that you have placed your Holy Spirit within us because Christ has made us clean. He's made us righteous. He's made it possible for you to have your home with us. Blows our minds. And Lord, I can't help but think of Moses. 
who wanted more of you. He just asked, Lord, can you just give, give me a glimpse of your glory? I want to see more of who you are. Lord, may that be the prayer of our heart. May we desire you. May we be filled with you. May we be used by you individually, Lord, but as a church as well. Bless this place. Use it, I pray. And thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us through Christ. In his name, amen.